This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Our ability to make progress on the things we want to make progress on, the way we want to make progress on them, means we have to continue to try to humanize each other. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Honored to be joined today by Undersecretary Liz Allen on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Liz is currently the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs at the State Department, where she's focused on reimagining the power and the purpose of American diplomacy. So welcome to the podcast. That's no small brief. <laughs> yeah, that's a small task. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> well, I'd love to, to kick off these conversations by asking, you know, what got you into this field? Like what brought you into the weird world of international affairs and the communications track specifically? I love this question because for me, it's like, let's go way back. And yeah. for me, I am someone who loved, loved my high school government teachers and my high school history teachers. Oh. I was inspired kind of in that high school era of my life because I found the subject matter so resonant at the same time, you know, that our country was dealing with 9-11 and we were in an increasingly globalized world. Um, international affairs, civic participation really spoke to me. And so and where did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I am a very proud Buffalo native. That could be a whole other podcast. So <laughs> go Bills. I got to get that in there. But, you know, I'm someone who thought I wanted to be a social studies teacher. And actually here we are, we find ourselves here, um, you know, 20 years later, not in fact doing that and feeling very honored about the position we have. Or maybe you are doing it. The, ultimate, very, the ultimate social, social studies teacher. <laughs> exactly. But but a bit more practical answer to the question. I, I was a State Department intern when I was in college. Yeah. I decided sort of through my college education that with as much due respect to teachers as they deserve, I wanted to try something different. And I worked on international women's issues at the State Department as an intern. Oh, wow. And okay. Was, so in what years was that? That was 2004 and Five. And okay. Okay. Um, it was very powerful to be working on that side of issues at that moment because mm. First Lady Laura Bush and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice were paying a lot of attention to the rights and, and outcomes for Afghan women. Right. Of course. And so really the lens of international women and girls and the importance of women and girls policy um, to the broader U.S. foreign policy agenda was how I got my start in this world as a policy matter. And it was a really important thing that really stays with me. So could I just ask yeah. a, a digression because, you know, obviously we're smart women, love smart a digression. power, you know, like, and, and I just, I'd love your, your thoughts on, you know, cause you, you started your career on women and girls issues mm -hmm. at the state department. What do you see as the progress or where, where do we see the state of things now the, giving your history with the, the, that set of issues? So I think there's two ways to look at this. I'm, I'm someone who believes strongly um, in the phrase, two things can be true. And so I would offer that frame and that rubric for um, my view on this, which is we've made enormous progress on both the conceptual agreement and understanding that women and girls issues deserve attention, deserve resources, deserve um, everything that we're putting against it in this administration in particular, because what we find over and over is women and girls issues are at the center of almost every other issue, right? You can't- 100%. Yeah, I mean- 
you can't have a conversation about, you know, economic outcomes or democratic outcomes or free and open societies without knowing that all of those things are directly tied to women and girls issues. And I have found that over and over in my travels in this role. And Mm -hmm. recently, including I'll share one powerful anecdote. I was in Vanuatu in the Pacific Islands in um, October of this year. And there aren't many U.S. visitors to Vanuatu. We're really working on increasing our diplomatic engagement there. And I sat down for an event and a roundtable with civil society leaders that was framed around transparency and anti-corruption in civil society. And it turned into a very emotional, very heartfelt discussion about the rights of women to participate in society in those ways. And it all comes back to women and girls. So I I think as a policy matter, we've made a lot of progress. I think as a practical matter, there's been a lot of progress made. I think what we're all seeing now, though, is that there is a regression in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, when it comes to the rights of women and girls. And so I would echo something that Secretary Hillary Clinton said at this most recent Clinton Global Initiative in September on the the sidelines of UNGA. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. She said, you know, as the person who went to Beijing in the mid 90s and declared women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights, she did not anticipate that 30 years later we would be at the point we are where we still have to say that. Yes. And we do feel like we have to say that. So with as much progress as has been made, I think there's a lot of clear eyed understanding that there is so much more progress to make, including in some spaces to reverse some backsliding. Right. I mean, especially because authoritarian regimes specifically seem to be using um, gendered rhetoric, um, repression of women to consolidate power. So if it's really serious about this thing we're calling strategic competition. It does seem to me that we need to get a lot more serious about women and girls and their treatment in these different societies. Absolutely. And it's one reason, I mean, we, this, um, this administration released the first of its kind, um, women's economic security report last year. Um, cause exactly to your point, it's not just a matter, um, of values. It really is a matter of practical opportunities yeah. and, and enabling those practical opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you have written on, the information space, we had public diplomacy, you know, you know we, we seem to be awash in this sea of disinformation. How do you begin to wrap your arms around, much less tackle, that challenge from where you're sitting at the State Department? Well, thank you for asking. And I would just say, you know, the the practice of public diplomacy is as old as any kind of diplomacy. It just really means the interaction between and among people and publics. And so for a long time, public diplomacy was sort of bisected into two tracks. It was media relations and storytelling to make sure that our messaging can get out there. And then it was educational diplomacy and exchange programs and things that created opportunities for relationship building, both of which are still important. But to your point, The information space itself, the media space itself, enabled by social media and the proliferation of delivery platforms, as we like to say, how Mm -hmm. people get their information, has fundamentally changed in the last 20 years and particularly in the last eight to 10 years. And so we have reimagined, we have to reimagine what it means to communicate with people, to interact with people, to tell stories in ways that actually make a difference as a policy matter. And so to your question, one thing I would just offer is that while the information space, disinformation, those things have long been thought of as communications issues, as narrative problems, as content that needs moderating to get rid of it. Or or counter, like the active measures sort of stuff. You know, lies are truths and, 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 you know, fictions. Here's the facts instead. And some of that is still important. 
where we are now is is really with a much more acute and existential understanding that the very health of our information, the truth, the proliferation of truth is something that underpins every single issue in every single geography amongst every single audience. And it it means that our imperative to counter disinformation, to enable the flow of truthful information is a national security imperative because we can't talk about tackle or solve any other challenge or issue if we don't have a common basis of shared truth. And so it isn't just a matter of favorable narratives or truths and lies. Really, these days, we're thinking about the information space um, as a national security imperative um, and as something that is really you know, a tool for influence, right? People have to know the media space is a theater of competition, just as traditional security spaces have been. Yeah. Well, so segueing into the decision that you were, we're going to talk to uh, talk about today, uh, which is this sort of a creative way to reach new or different audiences, I would argue. It's it was your decision to to well to be the brain behind the encounter between President Obama and Anthony Bourdain. Oh, sure. In, in Vietnam, that, that amazing dinner sequence. And it, I mean, I was just rewatching it, that, that moment where President Obama shares his, the, you know, his optimism about the future. It was just a really unique, profound expression. So how did you come up with this? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, we're used to seeing a president on a podium yes, and sort exactly. of saying the words and like, yeah. you know, how did, how did that come about? Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. And in some ways, it's really meaningful to think about it at the time because it was such a pivotal moment in hindsight in particular. What I'll say before maybe getting into that specific case is to your earlier question about how we're thinking about countering disinformation. It's a matter of making sure that we reach people where they are, right? That's the fundamental tenet of any good strategic communications policy. We have to go to talk to people in ways they're used to in places they already are, um, which will bring us to the Bourdain moment. And we have to think not just about rebutting false information, but about allowing more truthful, credible information to flourish in the first place, right. which is why so much of what we're doing is enabling independent media and okay. thinking about communications well beyond traditional media sources and going to places where people are. These days, that looks a lot like engaging digital influencers on mm -hmm. Instagram mm -hmm. or Facebook or TikTok, yeah. because like it or not, people are getting their news there. Um, and so, you know, kind of a beta version of what is now a very robust digital influencer effort by the U.S. government was this moment between President Obama and Anthony Bourdain. And to your question, um, my colleague in the White House at the time, Ben Rhodes, mm -hmm. um, he and myself and another one of our colleagues had sort of all independently thought about some kind of interaction like this. Okay. Um, and we had sort of the luck of someone in President Obama who, you know, was very tapped into to pop culture, who was a great speaker and could sort of, you know, understand the value of leveraging culture, particularly given his own history, upbringing and background. Sure. But, you know, it wasn't a given that something like this was worth a president's time. Right. And, right. I mean, because there's these, you know, these questions about, you know, are you diminishing the, yes. the power of the president or the, 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 the station of the president? I mean, I can, I'm just imagining some yeah. of the, the pushback that might have occurred at the time. And, and, you know, when you work in the White House or for anybody that works for any boss, you realize that time is the most valuable commodity. So the imperative to justify that time is high, which is why when, you know, it's an honor really to reflect on this moment or decision as you framed it, because because a lot of times we look back on decisions as moments of crisis. We had to do A or B. Yeah. And actually, I would offer that this 
you know, quote, decision to recommend and move forward with this engagement was really much more a matter of sort of um, trying something with a high risk tolerance that we hoped and thought would pay off. And in this case, it did. But that wasn't a given either. Right. right? So to put it in for context for your listeners, um, this was a trip in um, the spring of the year 2016. And the president was going to Vietnam and to Japan. And okay. the reason we were going to Japan was to mark a agreed upon sort of reconciliation moment over the um, bombings in World War II of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so the tone and tenor of the trip was quite serious. Yeah. Um, this is a moment where our relationship with Vietnam um, was really at a pivotal moment, really looking to show that we were invested. And so to your point, it was a, it was it was a serious matter, as most matters of foreign policy and national security are. And there were a lot of optics to consider on the trip. But we knew that we wanted to find a moment to make sure that President Obama, on behalf of the United States, could speak to people well outside of those who pay attention to foreign policy. Yeah. Well, and also choosing to have Vietnamese street food. Yes. Right? So yes. that's also a signal to the Vietnamese. It's a sign of respect. Food. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, look, Anthony Bourdain was uniquely suited to be able to have a conversation that cut past, you know, sort of the the BS meter, if I may. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being there in Vietnam with them and watching them have this conversation that, you know, had some TV production to it for mass audiences, but really turned into an extremely genuine conversation between two very well-traveled men of influence. Um, I think it was powerful to see what kind of commonality they shared. Yeah. And they both felt, and you hear this in the end of the conversation, they both felt such a calling to talk to people about talking to each other. We yes. have to find ways to come around a table together, for yes. example, to talk about things that matter to everyone. We have to be able to realize that if we're going to advance a future based on our values, those of us in the United States and in you know democratic countries, it means that we have to push people to find more similarities than differences amongst each other. And that's what was so powerful about that conversation. And they, they really issued a call to action, frankly, mm -hmm. to their audience um, on finding ways to come Come together, which brings us to a lot of how we think about modern day public diplomacy, which is, you know, diplomacy doesn't always happen around the conference table. It happens around the dinner table or yes. it happens around, you yes. know, we were talking about the importance of music and art. It happens in the art studio. It happens in the concert hall. It happens in the sports stadium, right? The power of international sport is not lost on us as a way to bring people together. And I would offer that I think that the President Obama, Anthony Bourdain moment was at the time the most high profile way to demonstrate demonstrate that concept that we've been building on ever since. And it's worth saying to the point about assessing risk and assessing the return on investment that if you go back now to that noodle shop in Vietnam where that episode was filmed now almost eight years ago, um, it is a revered location. It yeah. is a revered dish. You can you can show up and order the <laughs> President Obama order. They have the table encased in a plastic um, protection barrier. And, and that's a signal um, that a lot of people, both in the Vietnamese public and in the international audience, will not remember anything from President Obama's trip to Vietnam except eight years later, yes. that iconic moment. And that actually, I think, proves the point that really trying to, to build these more human moments as a part of diplomacy pays off in the long run. For people. Like governments are made of people. That's right. Where, you know, it's it's all about human connections, isn't it? Is. It is. And I just have to say on that note, I mean, one thing that I've become fond of saying in this job 
That is such an obvious point. But when you say it, particularly to those who work on matters of national security and foreign policy, the idea that the future is not just going to be shaped by government to government relationships, it's actually going to be shaped by people to people people relationships. It's about the people. It it, it underpins everything we do. It is why we invest in young leaders around the world. It's why we're using culture to bring people together. It's why we believe so strongly in training, you know, the leaders of tomorrow in every sector, because particularly in this moment we find ourselves in. Let's think about the disruptors in people's lives. This is something that Secretary Blinken has talked to us on his team about. The disruptors in people's lives, the issues foremost on their minds, right, broadly, globally, in the last few years, digital technology and the Mm -hmm. advent of emerging technologies that impact your daily life, Mm -hmm. and the pandemic, the highest disruptors, right? Right. Those problems, those issues, they know no borders. Right. We are in that together, just like we're in it together when it comes to climate change, when it comes to food security, when it comes to how other technology is affecting our lives. And as it comes to to war, uh, you know, like the the war in Ukraine is impacting people around the globe in so many different ways. The ripple effects are extraordinary. And to that point, I mean, just, you know, having to say to audiences over and over what you think is a security issue is also an economic issue in almost every case. Absolutely. Um, It it just shows our interconnectedness. And Mm -hmm. so. You know, we feel really called to be able to um, train this next generation, engage this next generation. The work of public diplomacy is not just the short term sort of crisis driven um, imperative to make our information space healthier, as we talked about earlier in our conversation. But it really is to build the long lasting relationships that are going to matter into the future. So it's a strategic perspective. It's absolutely a strategic perspective. And I would say as we kick off 2024, you know, we think about 2024. There are so many consequential elections around the world this year. Is it seventy percent of the world's population is going to be going through an election? That's right, and and so many of our you know bedrock democracies, so many of our emerging democracies, it's going to be a very revealing year in terms of all of the election results. And there's a lot of conversation about what it will mean for our ability to have partnerships and allies going forward. How mm-hmm. will we solve problems? And what a lot of us are saying, and what we believe so strongly. I just talked to the secretary about this last week. Is Our ability to solve problems with like-minded partners is going to depend on our people working together to withstand potential government transitions. And that's, that's a strategic imperative. Yeah. And, 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 and cultivating a sense of empathy, right? I worked in government donkeys years ago, but like, you know, just at the time I felt like we were reasonably good at building an interagency position, but actually talking to allies and partners in the cult of, in, in the, the formulation of strategy, bringing people on board at the front end, it was much more challenging. And so we just, I just felt like we ended up talking at our, our partners mm-hmm. or talking at our allies. It does seem that this administration is, and has taken a different approach to, to that kind of uh, strategic collaboration. Absolutely. I mean, I would say two things on this. One is, and and this is a particularly heartfelt um, concept coming out of what we've seen in the Middle East in the last few months, is our ability to make progress on the things we want to make progress on, the way we want to make progress on them, means we have to continue to try to humanize each other. Right. And so the work, particularly the work of public diplomacy, of our of our exchange programs, of our study abroad programs, of our storytelling 
really comes down to trying to humanize people around the world for each other, because we're not always aiming for agreement amongst people, but we should be aiming for understanding and respect and respect. And to your point, empathy, um, you know, on the point of, it's really interesting to hear you talk about kind of this point about talking past each other, talking past our own counterparts, even with the best of intentions, we have to think about how we make progress. And one of the biggest changes having come back into government this time, this is my sixth job at the State Department, the thing that feels the most different now than any time in the past is having the sort of intellectual honesty to understand how narratives and public sentiment affect our policy decisions. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. And I would just say, I mean, this is something Secretary Blinken says, like if we don't have communicators at the table, we are not having as intellectually honest and rigorous a discussion as we can be having. Mm -hmm. Because to your point, a lot of considerations around people and how they're feeling and what they need and the likelihood of implementation of a policy or an understanding of the human trade-offs of a certain policy are what's going to ultimately lead to its success or failure. And so there has been an effort um, ongoing to continue to think about the human trade-offs of a policy um, in those early discussions. Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. That's fantastic. So to wrap up our conversation, do you feel that your your gender as a woman has had an impact on on the the decision to recommend the President Obama conversation with Anthony Bourdain or, or and your, your approach to how you take decisions your, your leadership style overall and so why and if not why not mm-hmm. I think I love this question and I think of course it does and and sometimes in different ways than you might think and sometimes mm-hmm. in not you know, not as acute in ways that might be um, a little bit more stereotypical. You know, I'd offer a couple of things. I think women are sometimes slower to trust their instincts than some of our male colleagues, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us feel like we have to be right more often than not, or there is a pressure to feel like we need to be right on behalf of all women, right? So that we move <laughs> us forward. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say, though, that often it is the instinct and judgment part of my own decision making that uh, proves out more often than not. I mean, as I say to a lot of interns and college students, and I, I love talking to them, I benefited from that as a college student, especially coming to events at CSIS. <laughs> true, um, true story. I talk, I talk a lot about the importance of EQ, not just IQ. And I think a lot of us who've worked in and out of government have come back to government, recognize that that EQ component um, continues continues to be extremely important. And at the risk of dramatically oversimplifying the fact that (laughs) I think women sometimes have a a really honed EQ, I think that can really lead to better decision making. Mm -hmm. You know, the the other thing that comes to mind when we think about being a, a woman in a position of leadership is what we all often talk about, the concept of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And um, certainly one's own imposter syndrome can be a limiting factor. And a lot of, of us have worked to move through that, move past it or, or reconcile with it. You know, I, I would offer, I think I talk to a lot of women at the State Department and across the U.S. government. Sometimes we feel like really confident about our own abilities and we've worked past our own imposter syndrome, but we are dealing with others projecting theirs upon us about oh, our yeah. roles. That's interesting. And and I sometimes yeah. feel like, you know, in your day-to-day decision-making or in your day-to-day work, mm-hmm. um, women are talking about the fact that they have to overcome a bigger gap in benefit of the doubt. Yeah. then they should have to um, because yeah. of ongoing stereotypes and perceptions. Even if you're sort of like, I'm in the, in the right place in the right time, I'm yeah. feeling pretty good, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that's a dynamic that that I've talked to some people about of late. 
Wow. The external dimensions. Wow. Yeah. That is. And dealing with dealing with people's projections of their own perceptions upon you. And, and, and yeah. how much should you take that into account for your own efficacy? And how mm-hmm. much can you just sort of tune out the noise, know what the signal is and move forward? Right. And especially given, you know, what you're saying about EQ, you know, part of EQ is being able to sense those vibes. And so like is shutting some of that off actually impacting your EQ. There's, there's some trade-offs there too. That's fascinating. I mean, let's get a psychologist in yeah, here to tell, help yeah, us with know, this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody's listening? No. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for this, this really terrific conversation um, about how important it is to be human with each other. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. A lot of us wake up every day, feel very driven by our mission. It's an honor to be in the position to try to make a little bit of change, um, even when incremental. Incremental mm-hmm. change is still change. And I appreciate yes, it is. the fact that we do so with partners um, like you and your team here. So it's been great to be with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time.